Episode 9 of Climactic, the voice of the people on climate change. Hello, Mark. Couldn't help but noticing you've been mastering the art of Facebook Live on our Facebook feed. That's right. Uh, mastering, I'm not sure if I'm there yet. I'd say I'm still a journeyman, <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm really enjoying that, Rich. So it's been a real pleasure using that for Climactic to tell people about new episodes and just stuff I find interesting while out and about in the city, and I look forward to doing that a lot more. Yeah, we're getting a, a lot of uh, good feedback on that well done mark and you can check out mark doing his thing at climactic on our facebook page you won't be disappointed i can assure you so mark how did my american accent hold up just then well rich america is a very big country with very many accents so i'm sure that was one of them and it was lovely i'll take that as a backhanded compliment feel free But Rich, you haven't been quiet at all on your end. You've been doing some great interviews yourself. And this is a really good one with John Fry. He's a land care advocate, which is something I didn't know much about beforehand at all. He uh, is a sustainable project manager and also a city councillor at Bathurst City Council in New South Wales. So he must get up very early in the morning. I know you were impressed, Rich, straight off the bat with the building you were recording in. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Because you sounded almost as impressed with the building. As you were with John. Yes, Mark, I had the pleasure of talking to John at Skillset, which is at the Flannery Centre in Bathurst, New South Wales. The Flannery Centre is, of course, named after Tim Flannery, famous scientist, author and environmental activist. And energy efficiency is something to behold of this centre, Mark. And I'll leave it to John to describe how exactly that works. All right. Thank you so much for that, Rich. I cannot wait to hear the interview. So here we go with Councillor John Fry. Okay. Here with Councillor John Fry about Bathurst City Council. Thank you very much, John, for being on Climactic. Thank you, Rick, for taking the time. It's a pleasure. We're in the marvellous offices of Skillset, the Flannery Centre in Bathurst. I wonder if you could tell listeners the story behind the setting up of the place, what it does, and how you got involved with it. Well, Skillset had an office in Bathurst in the main street, like everyone else. Uh, It was using quite a lot of energy. The former CEO applied for a grant through the Labor government through energy efficiency uh, programs, and we were lucky to get $5 million to fund the building of, well, most of the building of this, and we had some of our own resources. So it really is a prototype, this building. It has full green star rating. Yes. It has uh, all the sustainability features that you need in a modern, you know, green star building, mm. including really good energy efficiency. It has a sort of passive heating system, which basically involves the sun shining onto 
dark-coloured masonry, as in concrete floors, polished concrete floors, rammed earth walls. There's a whole range of things, that, and, and it's a reverse brick veneer, so the concrete blocks are on the inside of the walls. It was quite incredible, wasn't it, John? It's actually a cold day here in Bathurst, and we walked in, and it felt like central heating, but you were telling me, no, it's not. It's just the way the, it's, it's structured. Well, the heat would have accumulated over the weekend because we had two sunny days. Yes. And the building management system would have opened the windows in the middle of the day and basically evacuate the air. Mm-hmm. And then the warmer air comes in through the – it's an air – it's not an air conditioner as such. Yes. It's an air um, management system. <laughs> so me, fresh air comes in through the floor, which is already heated by the sun. Mm. So you're actually heating the air as you're bringing it into the room. And I guess it's the opposite to most an air conditioning system where the outlets are very small and the inlets are huge. And it's very slow. It's like air replacement yes. rather than air, air conditioning. And so it puts pressure on the hot air to exit the building more slowly. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the heated air is coming in. And, and re, the re, reverse is the case in summer. So in summer... We've got an evaporative system, which just cools the air, chills the air a bit, and then it runs under the slab. The air runs under the slab slowly, and it, it cools down because of the earth linkage. So the building is linked, obviously, to the earth uh, through the slab. Mm-hmm. So we take we make use of the slab in cooling and heating. But as I say, the masonry, the, the rammed earth, the concrete blocks, and the concrete floors effectively the heat storage bank. As I say, the building management system will open or close the windows accordingly. Is it the future, do you think, of buildings of this size? <clears throat> this is a prototype, mm. but it would be far easier to build this now, yes. knowing what we know, and all these materials now are, are sort of off the shelf effectively, whereas some of the materials we had to search mm-hmm. widely to get, including the organic uh, carpet you know, built out of husks or uh, I think it's sugarcane mulch or something, so okay. the, the organic carpet... Um, the you know the low off gassing paint, so we've got uh, it's not it's very low allergy the whole building, but sourcing these materials now is a lot easier. The five years down the track, there, there were glitches with the systems because they were new. You know, mm. some yeah, the, yeah. the one of the air units had to be the pumps broke down. We had to get new pumps from Germany and like the whole lot range of dramas. But um, apart from that, you know, it's a wonderful building to work in, and not lots of natural light. And do you use solar energy at all? We've got 30 kilowatts of solar at the back here. Mm-hmm. So we use all our own energy through the day. At this stage, we don't have batteries because it was, it was cost prohibitive. But at this stage, this place only usually only works from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. So mm-hmm. the bulk of our power we generate on site. And at night, we buy it back from the grid. When did you first sort of get involved, John? I um, came to school set about four years ago, mm-hmm. and I just left a job where I had to set up a sustainable site in terms of climate adaptation and energy and water and food. So I basically had that uh, background when I came here. So I've joined the environment team, mm-hmm. and the last few years I've been running a government, federal government program called Green Army for young people. Yes. So our core business here at Skillset is to empower young people. Yes and basically create the best future possible for young people. Not exclusively young people, but the bulk of our apprenticeships and our senior school college and our work teams are under 25s. Just on a personal level, John, when did you first 
become an environmentalist? Uh, was it was it just a, a sudden thing, or was it well over time? I'm a you know I'm a post-war baby boomer, and um, I think the '60s when I was a child, you know, at school in the '60s there was a lot of social change. Mm. So I was like a sponge, you know, I was looking at all this stuff. And, of course, Australia was a couple of years behind the rest of the world, mm. at least. Mm. Um, and I guess in the 70s, the 60s sort of era uh, got to Australia. You know, the counterculture, the revolutionary, the hippies, the whole yeah. thing, al- alternative ideas uh, came through in the 70s. So at that point in the, in the 70s when I was a teenager, I brought a block of land about 20 k's out of Bathurst thinking, oh, I'm going to, uh, you know, tune in, drop out. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yep. mm-hmm. So I'm still um, trying to drop out. I'll <laughs> hit 60 and I've still, still got plans yeah. to drop out. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so it was the influence of the 70s and yeah. and then the influence of my, my family. My father took me bushwalking quite a lot mm. and uh, that's how I got involved. But I didn't really get stuck in. Until the 90s, the early 90s, um, I returned from Sydney uh, back to Bathurst and started forming land care groups over this region. So mm-hmm. I probably formed uh, a couple of dozen land care groups. And then I was working as a project manager, like a land care facilitator, supporting those groups mm-hmm. and organising grant funding and, and work teams and planning programs. So, so all through the 90s, basically, I did um, a whole lot of land care work around this region. And then from 2000 to 2010, I worked for Conservation Volunteers Australia on a, on a New South Wales um, level. Mm-hmm. So again, I was managing environment programs and land care work and youth programs across the whole state for, for that 10 years. I've been organising young people to mm-hmm. do environment work since, since the 90s with farmers. And we're back in studio briefly, just to give some context about John. John was born and bred here in Bathurst in the central western New South Wales, and not only lives on this land, but has worked on it all his life. He now trains young apprentices, teaching them sustainable skills in alliance with local farmers. For decades, John has managed projects with Landcare and other environmental groups. Landcare, in case you don't know, I didn't know about it before this interview, is actually a non-profit that started in Victoria in 1986. That group has now grown to be across Australia and actually over 20 other countries. Yeah, and it's John's experience, Mark, that's given him a wealth of land regeneration knowledge. He's seeing some very real changes changes on the land though due to climate change and he's working hard to help us change our ways and it's very interesting what he has to say okay back to john fry when you're working so close to land and to the the local environment have you seen the changes uh, that climate change has has brought in the last what 30 40 years or so is that has that been brought home to you? Well, it, it has to me. Mm. Um, it, the changes have been remarkable. In my lifetime of fishing and swimming and bushwalking in this region, I don't know, the last 10 years I've seen um, probably the landscape has become carbon positive. So carbon negative, I mean, it's actually there's more carbon leaving the landscape than, than what's being accumulated because of the current dry spell we're having. So at the moment... There's more vegetation dying than there is growing. Okay. So it's it's a precarious position mm. Um, mm. to see. And this I'm talking about mature trees, 
trees that are 100 years old are dying. I'm seeing a lot of the land care trees that I planted back in the 90s uh, are dying, you know. It must be heartbroken, John. It is. It's not wholesale, It's mm. not, but it's, it's quite remarkable and quite noticeable that you, know, you might see one in five trees dying in a corridor. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's really about subsoil moisture okay. but being lost and at that point the tree becomes stressed. Yes. Then it's more vulnerable to attacks from fungus and pests and insects. And, and a friend of mine said that <coughs> they often die from the inside as well. Yes. Uh, and you don't know, you know, it looks okay for a while and then suddenly that's just... Yeah, so that will mean, you know, if, if, if native oh, and, and a lot of non-native species are, mm. are stressed as well, it just seems a shame that it, native trees are dying and not just trees, ground cover and mm. mid-story and upper story, uh, the whole range, but it seems that there are non-native species that are basically holding up at the moment mm. and they're replacing the natives. So a purist, a nativist would say, well, we, we've got to replace all those with native trees, but if the native trees are dying mm. and we've got to have a an oak or an elm or, Adaptable. A, or a hawthorn mm. or, a, or, a, or a poplar, we've just got to go with that. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a tree. A tree is a tree. And if it's growing, it's using carbon and it's called giving a shade. Yeah. So I'm at the point now with climate change, I don't care what plant it is. Yes. As long as it's covering the ground and producing topsoil and providing habitat. That's almost a sea change in paradigm shift, isn't it? For, because I know a lot of people are saying well, uh, we have to get rid of the, in, the invasive, introduced in, invasive yeah. species yeah. in favour of getting back to natives. Yeah. But the point you make is a very good one. I mean, I was doing some research, John, and um, they said something about here in the central western New South Wales, we're expected to rise by, I think it's 0. 0.7 degrees by 2030, and then I think it's 2.1 degrees by 2070. I mean, that's, that's quite massive, oh, isn't it? We, we've, we've gone past that already. I mean, the last five summers we've, where I, I tracked uh, some measurements, we're, we're about a 1.5 over wow. in, in summer and, and at least one degree over in winter. How's that affecting the agriculture of the region? Well, it's precarious, yeah. yeah. It's, at the moment, soils are very, very vulnerable to storm events. So if we get massive storms, we'll have massive topsoil loss and mulch loss because the first thing that goes is the mulch. That's the stock manure and the broken up grass, which is very light, and that flats off and into the creeks and mm. clogs up the creeks where you don't want it in the creeks, you want it up in the paddocks yes. to, to grow more grass. Yeah, the, the trouble is with the storms we've been getting recently, there've been um, intensive point storms where, yeah. where one farm will get 40 mil and the next guy gets five. So that seems to be an emerging pattern. That's weird, isn't it? Like uh, I have been talking to a few farmers and there's a, one person will say, oh, yeah, we got, did you get this rain? And somebody else will say, no. Yeah. Uh, they miss out entirely. It's very localised, isn't it's, it? It's very random. Yeah. <laughs> and you're just sort of sitting there waiting. It's like winning a lottery, getting a storm, you know. Mm. But as I say, that storm can cause a lot of damage. Yes, it can. If you haven't got ground cover. So overall, John, are you put you on the spot here, but are you pessimistic or optimistic that we oh, can make the changes to well, mitigate climate change? Look, I'm, I'm realistic and I can see the changes happening. The changes are locked in for, for, for our lifetimes and basically we still need to do ameliorate. We still need to stop using fossil fuels and, and the whole spectrum. But in terms of adaptation, 
there'll be losers and and big losers. You know, like it'll be further west of say Wester Parks and Condola. Uh, I think those areas will become less and less viable for farming, mm-hmm. and agriculture will start shifting east. The the grain belt will get narrower, and we'll have. I think we'll start have to look at alternative crops or um, different scale of crops. Yeah, I was just looking, uh, watching the web yesterday. Bathurst has its proclamation day ceremony for um, two hundred and three years of settlement here in Bathurst. So we're the oldest inland settlement, and this is where agriculture began, mm. and which was an experiment. So we really just had 200 years of experimental agriculture in Bathurst mm. it, using Euro- European techniques, which didn't suit this place. We didn't realise we had lower fertility. We effectively mined the fertility mm. in the, um, you know, inland Australia. So it's another form of mining which was slower and more uniform, and we're realising now that agricultural production has started to decline. But the post-war uh, industrialisation of agriculture in terms of chemical fertilisers, which were left over from the war, mm. and chemical um, herbicides and weedicides that also, I think, were developed by the Germans in the war. And so really we're, we're riding this post-war chemical boom. Mm. And that has changed the soil. You know, that mm. has changed soil health. It has, yes. And so we're now in a position where we have to look at regenerative agriculture mm. to, to bring this soil back to, to proper health and reduce our reliance on, um, you know, chemical fertilisers. Mm. I think it was Charles Massey called with a root warbler. He said uh, something similar about if I think he spent the first 10 years destroying his property. He was down the Central Highlands, I think before he realised that he needed to, to practice regenerative agriculture and repair the soil. Um, so taking what you were, you were saying into account, John, do you think there are any crops or, or farming techniques that would disappear from this area in the central rest of New South Wales? Well, I think Charles Massey, Charlie's a good example of, um, he's more a grazier. We launched his book here a few months ago mm-hmm. at Skillset. And... Um, well, we didn't get, we weren't overwhelmed with farmers coming, but it, I think, well, according to research by the ANU, about 20%, up to 20% of farmers mm-hmm. are now seriously either, either have fully adopted or in the process of adopting or, or commenced regenerative or restorative agriculture. Okay. Yeah. So you don't need 100% of farmers. You, you really just need, a, say, a third of farmers, and then you've got a tipping point where it becomes normal. The stuff Charlie Massey's saying, and part of our skill set network are a whole range of regenerative farmers mm-hmm. and um, organic farmers and biodynamic farmers. So we've got networks right across the East Coast that we draw on. We mainly don't get involved with agriculture with those guys, but we we do get involved with their farm planning and their, mm. their riparian zones, you know, fencing off their rivers and putting corridors in. And So we are looking at... That sort of work with with all those farmers, but we we really are mostly working with those that less than twenty percent of farmers. I mean, probably sixty seventy percent of farmers have had exposure to land care. Some have done a minimum amount and decided that was enough and sort of faded away. But land care is still very active, and it's probably one of the most successful agricultural social movements in the world. The social outcomes of land care have been enormous. 
And again, they've set a lot of these regenerative farmers on that track. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been organic farmers and all sorts of farmers of permaculture. So there's a whole range of people doing a whole range of things. And in some ways, that movement needs to come together a bit more and be mm-hmm. a force. Uh, there's a lot of agricultural lobbyists out there, but a lot of them are looking at this, the old industrial model, mm-hmm. the industrial farming model. So, so as you say, there are changes coming. And I think no kill, no till um, is sort of a a term being used now. And uh, even though you direct drill into um, in, into your see your soil with with grass or weed cover, mm. there's techniques to sow your seed at the point that it actually the crop is ahead of the weeds or the competing grasses. So mm. you can set your headers a bit higher, and you can harvest grain. Out of a paddock full of grass and the mixed, you know, mixed mixed herbs and grasses. So it, it's being proved it is possible. It's a cover crop sort of thing. Using cover crops, they often put sheep in to take that to get it down just before they sow. So that so it's actually sheep grazing, and then without losing too much cover, they'll then plant the oats or the barley or the wheat into that through direct drilling. I'm not a farmer, mm. but I've watched a lot of farmers and the way they do it, and um, it seems quite successful. The input costs are way lower, but there are a number of problems because it's a, a new idea of competing, competing plants, you know, and also um, not using chemicals is a challenge, you know, because we've become so dependent on chemicals. Yeah, yeah. Basically, there's a lot of positives. There's a lot of things happening, but, yeah, cropping will change. The, the varieties will change, and I think we'll have more crops like, say, instead of corn, you might have soy, you know, it needs less water, and instead of cotton, you might have hemp. Mm. So I think there's a lot of a lot of crops will change, mm. um, but farmers are very resourceful and very innovative and opportunistic. If it rains on the horizon, they'll accordingly uh, pl- they might sow dry these days. Mm. So normally you wouldn't sow into a dry paddock, but they're doing that these days if there's rain on the horizon, and they can do it very fast, you know, with the yep. with the machinery they've got now. So, John, putting you on the spot for the second time, <laughs> how long have we got before we get lasting global warming that's really going to cause a lot of problems? Oh, look, it's already here, uh, Rick. It's already here, and uh, we just don't realise that the changes have to happen now. But um, in terms of, I think we're, we're enormously adaptable. We'll, we'll keep changing and adapting, and there's a lot of smart people working on this. It's not as if um, no one's thinking about it. (laughs) So I think we'll see a reduction in, like, we're under water stress already here in the Bathurst region. Uh, We've got bores drying up, rivers going dry, farm dams are dry. So we're under enormous stress now. And not sure when that this current dry period will break, hopefully over this winter. So people are destocking as fast as they can. The last uh, week, I think, at the Carcor, Cattle sales, they sold nearly 13,000 cattle in one day. So those cattle are going straight up to Queensland, which was formerly in dreadful long period, dry period. Mm. So those cattle are going up there where there's there's been a lot of rain. And the opposite might happen. We get a lot of rain and Queensland will go dry and they'll sell their cattle and they'll come down here. So we're we're shuffling stock around Mm. between the states at the moment. And we probably waste a third of our food. So there's a third margin in there if we if we stop wasting food. So there's that's a good margin to have. Yes, yes. And 
some of the the variety of food we get may change or will change, uh, especially crops that need high amounts of water. Yeah, I think how long we got is a hard question. It's it's um, it depends on our level of innovation, our level of you know recycling, reuse, uh, the, the ways we can. Because agricultural production probably peaked in two thousand in Australia. But agricultural income has been going up. So the governments, the politicians are saying, oh, agriculture, oh, we'll double agriculture, you know. Pure fantasy. Mm -hmm. I I really think that's just dangerous talk, you know, Mm -hmm. saying, oh, we'll double our agricultural production. It's just impossible the way I see it Mm -hmm. to do that. But by changing crops and using new methods of low input, uh, we can certainly keep growing food and fibre and fruit. But... It's it's a case of yeah, constant change and trying to stay ahead of it. So they're interesting times, to say the least. Talking about change, John, switch uh, the conversation around to your work at uh, Bathurst City Council. Uh, what are the difficulties you face trying to get climate change into the heads of other councillors and trying to affect change on the council? Well, I've only been there six months, Rich. So <laughs> six months, I'm, I'm told... You need to sit there and listen for a year yep. before you do any yep. changes in local government. But I'm finding the Bathurst Council is more responsive than I than I imagined. You know, than, than a typical council, and they've got a reputation of being you know slow moving and moving at a glacial pace. But I'm finding Bathurst Council are pretty responsive. They've got some pretty smart staff. So really, when I bring something up at council, for instance, um, uh, divestment out of fossil fuels. Things like what are we doing with our recycling? Uh, what are we doing about water? The council senior staff have already thought about this, okay, yeah, and they're they're working on it. So it's pretty good. And again, I I wouldn't be claiming credit for all these ch- changes that the council's about to do, but I think I, my role is um, is cheering them on. You know, mm. <laughs> we we've got climate deniers, yes. absolutely. They yeah. say this is just a drought period, and and some of those are our elected councillors, and okay. it's not unusual to find people like that. I last year I, I addressed the parliamentary backbench committee on environment. I, I was thought I was going fairly well. Uh, I was suggesting new programs and the way we can you know, things we're talking about now to the MPs. And um, Senator Ron Heffernan came into the room, and as soon as I mentioned climate change, he said horse <laughs> every time. And on cue, every time I said climate change, he said, and I thought, well, this is. This isn't going anywhere. <laughs> no, it's not exactly a uh, mature response either, is it? <laughs> so I believe he's not. A, he's no longer a senator. But again, you'll find a couple of deniers in council, and you'll find them in government, uh, especially on the conservative end, mm. and you'll find them just about everywhere. And uh, I think the the way I see it, you've got about twenty percent of people who are aware, active, and concerned, mm. and. Even some of those people are very stressed about it. And there's 20% on the other scale, the end of the scale, who are basically deniers and underminers, and, and they can be traced back to the fossil fuel industry. I notice when I get the, the trolls on my blogs, all my stuff and my um, posts, mm-hmm. you know, I look them up, and a lot of them work for the fossil fuel industry. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I, I I understand that. I understand they, they're worried about their jobs. But, I mean... There's more jobs in renewables, and that's mm. been reproved across the world. So these guys just need to understand that. So, I mean, we've got a solar farm going up in Bathurst, a 130-kilowatt solar farm going up, mm-hmm. and that at Barwongle, that, that will um, 
have probably 100 construction jobs for two years and probably up to 10 permanent jobs, 15 permanent jobs, electricians, maintenance, uh, managing the livestock, boundaries, the fences, the trees. And then I think AGL are proposing to build a, a gas-fired power station at Liddell and that'll be slightly larger than the solar farm, but it will only have 12 permanent staff okay. to run it. So solar, <laughs> the solar renewable wind farms are actually employing the same amount of staff as yeah. the fossil fuel industry. So it's time to get on with it you know, and get renewables. For no other reason than Australia's incredibly dependent on diesel fuel from wherever, you know, Singapore, light or Middle East. Our diesel and petrol supplies are plying across the oceans as we speak in massive super tankers. Mm. If there's any type of global global disruption in terms of conflicts and in the in the South China Sea or in, in the Straits of Moors or wherever, we're in trouble. Now we've got a few days diesel left. Yeah. And we can't run power any power stations without diesel because there's there's a diesel linkage in there between the mine and the power station. There's a diesel truck involved, or is it, you know there's a there's diesel involved in all our transport systems. You know a lot of our power generation in remote areas. So the sooner we get off diesel, the better. Yeah, that's so, what you're thinking about. That's what you're saying is a global disruption. We'll be in real trouble. Well, you know, a global disruption is quite likely. Yes, because of the the way the politics and the, the, the geopolitical boundaries in the Middle East are fragile, to say the least. Mm. And let's face it, that's why they're all over there, because of the oil. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, again, there's a lot of foreign interest in our coal, and it's the same thing, whereas, unfortunately, we don't have conflict where India and Korea and China and Japan are buying our coal. At the moment, there's no conflict on that, but Obviously, there's domestic pressure saying uh, we shouldn't be mining coal for a number of reasons, including I think the worst thing about coal is probably the dropping of the aquifers, mm. you know, pumping megalitres a day out of coal mines, which are draining aquifers for dozens of kilometres, right, or hundreds of kilometres possibly in that rock strata. Mm. So that's the, the present danger in coal mining is, is just losing all our some sort of moisture. From just what you're saying, John, um, do you think it's uh, a wise thing then to start thinking about community energy, the decentralised energy away from the grid? Would that be an alternative, say, for Bathurst? Well, the new solar farm at Brawongo mm. would technically put Bathurst, Lithgow, possibly Orange off the grid. Wow. But obviously there's no battery storage at this stage because of the cost point. Mm-hmm. But the developers, Photon Energy, are saying they will leave all the connectors there for batteries when the price point arrives. Mm-hmm. So at some point in the future, there'll be battery storage at this massive solar farm, House, uh, household systems going in. Mm. So the batteries are the next wave. People like myself, you know, I put solar on my roof five years ago but can't afford batteries now. But in the next few years, there'll be a wave of people like me who've got solar who now want to retrofit with batteries. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there'll be household grids, there'll be neighbourhood grids, mini grids, regional grids, and the, the grid the grid itself is an interesting creature. I mean, it's incredibly complex, and it's ageing in some areas, it's new in other areas, mm. um, so it's patchy. So I can see some sort of hybrid thing evolving where if, if a major transmission line went down, you probably would have enough capacity to... I mean, you couldn't run, um, you know, an aluminium smelter. <laughs> you'd have to yeah. shut down. Yeah. You'd have to shut down some big industries. But I think um, normal business and domestic would 
would survive with a system of grids, but the actual grid, I guess, has to be maintained and it's been sold off, as you know, um, to private industry. So I think the grid is a, is, is a national security issue and it should be in public hands, but I think that, that horse has bolted. Mm. But the government needs to control the grid, you know. John, just getting back to the reaction you're getting uh, when you bring when you support renewable energy schemes. We spoke to Councillor Tim Baxter of Port Phillip Council. Community feedback was very important in him getting through sustainable solutions. That was something that he was really pushing. Is that the same in Bathurst? Probably not my strong point is is I I get an idea, I run with it, I look behind me and there's no one behind me. Um, <laughs> but um, I absolutely see the need for uh, community support and, and feedback. I think if it's not too technical and it's put out there in plain terms for people, they understand that you spend this money, you you have uh, free power in five years' time or whatever it is and make it fairly straightforward. So I find that people, even people slightly sceptical about climate are actually fine with solar energy because they just see it's a, they see the benefits yeah they? they see the yeah. benefits and yeah. um, they can see the point of it so solar uh, transport is obviously the next thing on the horizon again in terms of community acceptance I think I think the community will go with I'm just sort of judging it on Bathurst will go with uh, electric vehicles mm-hmm. but probably not ready for autonomous vehicles I think that's just one step too far for some people yeah. <laughs> having no driver uh, but it will happen, of course. But I just think we we put autonomous vehicles on hold for now. But yeah, what you're saying about community awareness and community um, support, I think you're right. It is critical, and that's something that personally and and you know the Greens and other environmentalists have to probably spend a bit more time on. Because I'm a member of the Greens, mm. you know, I don't take it that personally, but. There's a there's a certain element of trolls and yes, that I'd mentioned absolutely. earlier who will basically be derogatory or a negative regardless of the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the issue. If, if the Greens like it, we don't. You know. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe that's a, a challenge for the Greens yeah. to to be more um, proactive in terms of educating and not alienating those people. And, I, and again, I wish I had the answer to that, but. <laughs> It's something we can work on. John, just finally, um, you were talking about China before. Uh, one of the things we'd like to cover on Climactic is China's recent decision to change the rules on recycling. Probably the first thing is to educate people to use less packaging and talk to supermarkets and stop it at the source. You know, that obviously that's the first thing. But the inevitable amount of packaging that does flow will go in balance into three bins, you know, your red, your green and your yellow. So the red and the green bins are fine because that's organic waste and, and landfill. And, and we're trying to minimise red bin contents, Well, I think most people are. But it's the yellow bin is the problem. Yes. And that is the recyclables that aren't separated. Some contamination, like 5% contamination. And that's the challenge that currently now is going to landfill, which is a tragedy. But I'm asking our council, can we store this? Can we somehow split it and store it? And they're going, well, there's a whole bunch of regulations and rules and problems with storing waste, which it still is waste under the Act, even though it's fairly benign. Mm. But it does need to be separated. It does need to be stored for future uses. And the future uses for plastics are shredding, pelletising, putting it through 3D moulds and, and injection moulds and powder powder moulding. So there's a whole lot of industry. There's a whole lot of stuff sitting in any room 
normal household items that can be made through 3D printing or have a mini injection moulding. Mm. So I think this is the raw material yes. for our products. I mean, there's a lot of companies now in Australia making railway sleepers and, and decking and planks and rails and bollards out of this recycled plastic. So it's weatherproof, it's long-lasting. Here it is, this feedstock ready, and somehow we've got to connect the feedstock Absolutely. up yeah. with these little factories. Mm. So these little factories are becoming more and more viable. That's a whole growth area. It's a whole new business opportunity is to look at these plastic products and get them recycled into usable usable products just through recycling and innovative technology. Again, these factories need energy, but nothing like um, you know to melt steel. <laughs> like they need a lot less than that. So I think there's a, a lot of opportunity there. You know, storing recycling for a later date, but that's that's the, the main hurdle now is where to store it and how to get that around the authorities, knowing that yeah, in, in a couple of years' time. We want to get that stuff and uh, and start making products out of it. Right. Well, John, that's about it for my questions, and that's been fantastic. I really appreciate the time. Thanks very much for being on Climactic. I'd just like to finish up with is there anything that you'd, uh, you'd like to mention or uh, bring up yourself. Oh, well, I guess um, just in closing, at Skillset here, we're looking at um, applying for some grants. We've got those the grants alive at the moment, to look at restoring landscape function. So bringing landscape, when that big storm comes, mm. have we got structures like leaky weirs, like the Peter Andrews leaky weirs? Have we got some control, some bed controls to stop erosion? So we're looking at um, getting grant money to build these structures, these engineered structures in eroded gullies and creeks and streams, and anything from a tiny catchment to a you know, a large one, mm. to catch those storms, slow them up so they don't do damage, and use recycled building materials. So there's a lot of bricks and concrete and tiles and clay pipes and stuff mm. that's coming out of demolition jobs yes. currently. And there is a process of getting it checked by the EPA and approved and, and crushed up into usable sizes. So all that aggregate and that masonry can be put back into concrete. It can be put into, you know, rural weirs or leaky weirs or chain upon structures and, and restore those wetlands back back to function and and then again using recycled organic waste and wood chips and cardboard and paper as as a um, fertiliser so we incorporate that with the construction material so this is an idea we've got we want to run with now at skill set is talk to farmers and start rebuilding these gullies and then start lobbying state and federal government for a national plan to to save our streams, and that's 350,000 kilometres of damaged streams in Australia. And, of course, we know what's going on in the Barrier Reef. And the Barrier Reef is just one part of it. There's nutrients and soil, topsoil loss, um, hemorrhaging out of the system. Mm. So we, we thought, well, we can pinpoint one thing we can do that ticks, ticks as many boxes as possible, recycling and rehydration and getting grasses and and plants back in the system. Thing, yeah, it's really a catchment thing. thing. It's a holistic thing. So that's one thing we're working on here at Skillset. And so we've got contracting teams out there today doing on-ground work, and we're hoping to do more of this gully restoration. Um, so there are some videos on our Skillset uh, environment website. Well, it is a fantastic place, John, and if you've got a great project here. I've heard so so many good things about it. I hope it all goes well and you, that you do get those grants. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right. Thank you very much. 
And thank you, John. Thank you for your time. And that was John Fry. Really enjoyable and interesting interview. Hope you enjoyed it as much as us. And Mark, I promise, no more American accents. <laughs> I'm kind of sad, Rich. I didn't know what I had till it was gone. Uh, and... Yes, on my behalf as well, thank you very much to John Fry for his time and perspective. And to our production team, time for a few credits here. Caleb, our producer, who can listen to us at two times speed without a nervous breakdown. <laughs> He's Hipster Jasbo on Twitter. Abby, our amazing designer, who, yes. when she's not dancing, is designing up a storm. Hire her at abigailhawkins.com. And Gretchen, who has reduced the number of face palms she has been listening to us. But it's still probably greater than one. Gretchen, we really do appreciate your constructive feedback. Don't listen to us. Thank you. <laughs> and to Queenie at Mad Season Cafe in Bathurst for putting me on to at least a dozen contacts and keeping me honest. <laughs> and to a couple of friends of the show who really came through this week big time. To Jackson, he's probably hearing this while walking Jack the dog. He gave me access to a pretty difficult-to-pull-off interview. Thank you very much for that, mate. And Sagant at the University of Melbourne Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences. Bet you can't say that ten times fast. Yeah. For being such a believer in the show. Honestly, from the first time he heard about it, he's been amazing. And for opening some very exciting doors that we can't wait to tell you about soon. And thank you very much for listening, folks. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.